0: After. Not every paranormal story fits in a neat little package. From time to time, we encounter a legend that goes beyond mystery, transcending into a tale that almost seems to tip the hand of the universe away from its vest, and in our direction. And with this, it offers a glimpse into the realm that we will never be allowed to understand. In seconds, we realize that glimpse is only there to confuse us, almost making fun of our inability to grasp the secrets of the universe. Tonight's story does that too. It's a campfire story, really. And yes, that's a nod to our dear friend and paranormal podfather, Jim Harold. But this is one of those stories, the kind you hear from a friend or a friend of a friend, but still someone that you know personally, or at least you know people who do. It's the kind of story that reminds you, not every quiet country lane is so quiet, after all. Join us as we sit down with our friend Tommy Beaver. Tommy is a longtime resident of Greensboro, North Carolina, where Scott attended college and now once again resides. It turns out that Tommy is pretty good at not only collecting strange stories, but retelling them so that we can all enjoy them. In fact, without people like Tommy, stories like these are lost forever swept up in the dustbin of time and space and forgotten because they were only ever shared orally, but never written down. This episode of Astonishing Legends is dedicated to the idea of giving stories like this one a permanent home. So grab your headphones or turn up the speakers and settle in for an astonishing legend from that farmer's field just down the road from your parents' house. You know the one that idyllic place that seems like the ultimate escape from your urban life. Let's find out what goes on there when no one is looking.
1: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forest Burgess.
0: And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and Hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth, to kill with sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beasts of the earth. Revelation chapter 6, verse 8, King James Version.
1: Join us tonight for the story of the Phantom Horse of Greensboro. And we're back. That we are, folks, and it's great to be back. We just wanted to take a quick second to thank you so much for supporting us and our sponsors for all these years. Yes, and when you
0: do that, more than want to come to our show, and that allows us to keep
1: doing it and keep it free to listen to. So, not a lot of housekeeping to do tonight, but we did want to mention the only other podcast from Astonishing Legends Productions that's out there right now The Midnight Library. This show is in its fourth season already. Hosted by the mistress of the
0: macabre, Miranda Merrick, and her partner in crime, the dashing Mr. Darling, the Midnight
1: Library will pull every trick of the book to lure you in and perhaps never let you leave. There's also been some rumblings about a second round of collector pint glasses, and they've been heard. These things take time, so please be patient. We're working on it. <laughs> yes uh, scott
0: paints everyone by hand so no, no it's not me it's it, it david spencer he does that oh yeah. yes yes we we'll calling david spencer <laughs> yes uh, uh oh and tess we should maybe conduct some kind of poll or something to figure out what six new characters from astonishing legends that people would
1: like to see Keeping in mind that Scott still gets to choose the wild card, like the uh, the Disco Wizard, right? Yeah, yeah. And I also, I should probably <laughs> mention that I didn't warn Tess about Ooh. this at all. Ah. In other news, we're about to be dark for two weeks, but not for any particular reason, other than when you plan out an annual bi-weekly schedule, there's a few times when being down for two weeks just makes sense. So that's one of those things. Ah uh, yes, but we're still around folks.
0: As we've mentioned before, you can listen to us live on the new app Fireside at firesidechat.com/forestburgess or FiresideChat.com slash Scott Philbrook. We're appearing on there every other week or so, live, and often with our friends Richard Hannum and Rob Kristofferson, as well as others. So check that out when you can.
1: Yes, we're making appearances there available as playbacks after the fact as well. And uh, we're still working on some new material for YouTube, so keep an eye on our YouTube channel, too. Okay, so what's the story with this horse? All right, folks, we want to welcome my good friend, Tommy Beaver, to the show. Tommy, say hello. Hello. Hello, Tommy. I'm so glad that you're here. I wanted to explain to our listeners a little bit about how you and I met. And this is a little more backstory about me than I usually go into on the show, but I'll I'll try to keep it brief uh, for people who want us to cut to the chase. But most people know, the long and short of it is, that I moved from Los Angeles, uh, my family did, from Los Angeles to Greensboro, North Carolina, probably in the past, I guess it's been two years now that I came back here. With my son and uh, my wife uh, was finishing up a job, and now we're all here together as a family. And so I've been here for a little while. We actually didn't say anything about it on the air because Forrest and I wanted to still produce remotely and we wanted to get everything settled. And, and hopefully, you didn't really notice, which surprisingly, a lot of people didn't. We were separated for Eight months, I think, before anyone started to ask questions. (laughs) But we had done in the summers, uh, I had been in uh, North Carolina in the summers and recording remotely anyway. So thank God Forrest and I had many years under our belts, so it worked out. But one of the things that's been nice about returning to North Carolina, which is where I went to uh, college and grew up, past the fourth grade anyway, is getting back into the local scene and hooking up with people and connecting with people that I hadn't had a chance to hang out with before. And one of those folks was connected to a group called the Beard and Mustache Club here in of North, uh, Carolina. Of North Carolina, yes, BMC of NC. And it was a gentleman named Matt Drew who listened to the show, and he said, why don't you come to – I guess he heard me say something about Greensboro, and he said, you need to come out, we're having a meetup, Come meet us at the Bearded Goat, which is this great bar in downtown Greensboro. And so I did. And I'm pretty sure that's the first time we met, right, Tommy? It is the first
2: time. In fact, I had the same thought as Matt because I can remember vividly telling my wife after listening to the show going, Oh my gosh! I think this guy went to UNCG in Greensboro. I think he did. Yeah, I don't know why, but I did. It's kind of like I think Racer X is Speed's brother. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah, it's yeah. like one of those. <laughs> yeah, right.
1: <laughs> well, that it was. It turned out I had a great time, and uh, you guys at the Beard and Mustache Club, which you're in, there's an annual charity which has didn't get to go this past year because of COVID. That you guys do that we participate in sponsoring, which is great. And I'm looking forward to doing that again. Tommy also is a very, very talented graphic artist and designer, and he is the person who helped us redesign Astonishing Al. So we are very grateful for that. It's been very popular, and we're very happy with it, Tommy. So thank you for that. If anybody's looking for a logo or something else, this guy is the man. We'll have a link to his uh, website. He's freelance now. Well,
2: thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, you guys were super easy to work with. and.
1: Glad it turned out well. It did. It turned out great. Awesome. And we're uh, thrilled. So one of the things that we figured out, aside from the fact that you may be distantly related to my wife, which is (laughs) a hilarious, insert (laughs) Southern cliche joke here, I also found you to be a very fascinating storyteller. You seem to have an endless supply of stories that I find particularly entertaining. And on top of that, nine times out of 10, they seem to have some paranormal bent to them. There's a lot of things about this that fascinate me, but not the least of which is how you remember all the details of all these stories. It's just amazing. So I want to come back around to the story that we're going to tell tonight, that this whole episode is centered around. And I want to set the scene a little bit about how I heard the story. So the other day, you and I had decided to have lunch together, which we try to do frequently, but we're both working and it gets hard to get together. But we managed to sort this out. And we met at this wonderful restaurant that was not here when I used to live here, but I will now be going to probably once a week called Taco Mama, right? Taco Mama. Taco Mama. Quick, casual Mexican food. I loved it. And we had some tacos. We're sitting down and we're we're just talking, uh, catching up a little bit. And then at some point he said, this is your line. I have this really crazy story. And I was just like, are you kidding me? I put the drink down. I was like, let's go. You know what I think it was? We were talking
2: about some sort of a, and I don't know if it was was Emily or who was talking about that they love true crime.
1: Yes. That's and my I wife, said, yes. oh, I have a
2: story that relates to true crime. Right. My yes. first
1: thought was, oh, this will be a true crime story from out in the world somewhere and there's some kind of connection to it. It turns out it was way more local than I thought it was. So why don't you set the stage a little sure. bit and and uh, bring our listeners into this, the world of this story?
2: And to go back to a point that you were talking about, one of the reasons why I have all these stories in my head is because I grew up in a house where odd things happened. So part of, <laughs> I guess, my therapy of trying to understand what was truly happening is I would talk to different people and... Nine times out of 10, something would take us down a rabbit hole of, hey, something weird happened to me. Really? Tell me about it. You know, and that for the past literally 40 some years, every you know, it, weird things started happening around 1314 for me. But yeah, 35, 40 years of just people telling me stories and me going, wow, that's really cool. So this is one of those tales where I was working at an advertising agency in the mid-90s. And as you do whenever you work with people, you you know, you have your your lunch group, your, your group that you go out every day to get your lunch with. And one of those days, it just got on the topic of, hey, something weird happened to me. And they would tell their story. Oh, yeah, listen to this. Somebody else would tell their story. And one of the girls who we were having lunch with, and it was someone who I had never heard talk about anything strange ever. She said, I had something weird happen to me. We're like, okay, let's hear it. And she said, do you guys remember the Fritz Klinner murders? This is a guy who had not only murdered his family, but I think murdered his wife's family. This happened in, I guess, the mid to late 80s here in Greensboro. And a book was written about it called Bitter Blood, and it all kind of climaxed in a chase with the police and down through the sort of the northwest part of Guilford County and... Ended up with this guy truly blowing the vehicle
1: up. This is when I was – my jaw hit the taco mama table because this was like, "You're okay, you're telling me about this crazy story. Man kills his entire family, blows himself up at the end of it, and it happened here in Greensboro. And just for our international listeners, we are talking about Greensboro, North Carolina, which is in the middle part of North Carolina on the east coast of the U.S. So I was – blown away by this because I did not know this story. But my wife, as you rightly pointed out, Emily, she was familiar with it, but mm. she has not read the book, Bitter Blood, that you referred to. And that book was written by Jerry Bledsoe from the Greensboro News and Record. It was a New York Times bestseller. So a lot of people have read this book. I feel like I'd heard of it, but I never realized it took place in Greensboro.
2: Well what's so crazy is I've never read the book. Yeah.
1: But I was
2: I loved sociology, criminology, that whole thing. Um and Oddly enough, whenever I was in college in UNCG, where you and I both attended, Jerry Bledsoe came and spoke to our class. This was maybe in the late 80s, early 90s. So it was when the, I guess the book maybe had just come out more than a few years after. But he came and spoke to our class for the entire time and retold the story and talked about the articles. And I guess the series of articles that he had written about these events – because he was the head guy covering it, he then compiled into the book that then became Bitter Blood. So when she said, oh, have you heard of this? I thought, oh my gosh, yeah, that guy is the guy who came and spoke to
1: my sociology class. So Bitter Blood came out in 88. Okay. The crimes must have been committed, oh, here we go, in 84 and 85. So here's what's interesting about this. All this went down... When I was a freshman and sophomore in high school, just over an hour from here, and I don't remember hearing about it at all. I mean, of course, you're going through your own problems in the ninth and 10th grade. <laughs> <But> I, <laughs> right. it's just like, I, I, this was not even on my radar. At least I, I don't remember ever talking about it. And it's really not that, to be such a big crime and not that far away. And I grew happened. up
2: in Moxville, which is an hour on the other side. Right. I was the same age you are. I'd never heard of it either. Yeah. Not until I got to college and he came to speak about it. Okay. So she you know, do you guys know this story yet? And she's like, at the time, she says, I was reading the book, Bitter Blood. And she's like, Me and three other friends, it was a couple who was married and another guy, we would always get together and go out to eat or hang out on the weekends. And the husband of one of my close friends who from the couple was reading this book as well. And we started talking about the book. Oh my gosh, did you what part are you on? You know, and this sort of this going back and forth and back and forth. And the other guy who was with us, Keith, said, What are you guys talking about? I want to I wanted to know about this book. So they were explaining everything. Well, the two guys thought, we need to go out there. We want to go where this car blew up. Wouldn't that be cool? Right. The
1: car blowing up. What exactly happened there?
2: And again, I have not read the book. Not read the book, right. But as I understand it, this guy was, he had the car rigged to blow. It was he, his
1: wife, their two kids, and dogs. In the car? In the car. Now, when I looked this up a few weeks ago, and I've actually gotten the book, and I'm going to read it, but as of right now, when we're doing this interview, I have not read it. They yeah, have not, no, but this is, that's <laughs> they've not, not important. Read them. It's <laughs> not important to this, super important to this story, but it is, and you'll see why when you hear sure. it. But I, I remember seeing, uh, from a detail standpoint, just a few weeks ago, that I believe that uh, some of the family members that were in the car were already deceased.
2: I had heard that, see what I heard was? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I had heard that his maybe his his kids and the dogs were already Yeah. Had already been killed. Yeah. Horrible. And perhaps maybe his wife was alive at the time. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe Yeah, the, the thing maybe I the read book suggested that they were that. kind
1: of she was alive, so I don't know if she was a willing participant or a you know hostage. It's not clear, but I think
2: I'm not sure. Yeah. I do. I believe that he took out several fa- of her family members. So if she was a willing participant, yeah. that goes even more twisted. Okay, but well, I'm not 100 percent sure about. Yes, that. yes. You will be nevertheless, able to, you'll the, be able to correct all of us. Yes, on this.
1: I'll correct myself. But the point is, at the end of this, he's in this car. It's a police chase situation.
2: It's a police chase, and it went on for a while. Right,
1: where they
2: were going. Down through town and headed out towards a part of uh, it's country area, but it's yeah. called Summerfield and in
1: that area, northern part of Greensboro. Yeah, yeah. And this is not a th- there are no high speed chases here. I lived in LA; there was one every day. This is not something that happens in Greensboro, North Carolina.
2: The interesting thing too is a friend of mine I used to work with. She was saying that she was coming home from work. Because there was going to be a big thunder. There was it was in the summer, whenever this the chase culminated. And she had two ways she could go. She could either go down one road or the other. She chose the other to get to her house. And as she was going to her house because she was going to let her dog in because there was going to be a huge thunderstorm, she heard this boom, the huge explosion. And in her mind, she thought, oh, that was like the biggest clap of thunder I've ever heard. You know, that just summertime thunderstorm thing. And then when she gets home and she's watching the news, she's like, that was it. I could have been going down that road. She's like, I was essentially parallel to it when it happened. But she said, I could have been on that road. It was like a 50-50 chance that she did this. That, yeah, was, him. I was, like, that was him
1: pushing the button.
2: That was apparently him blowing the whole thing apart. Okay. So this is all what they're talking about while they're at this couple's house having dinner one night. Night. Game night. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And oddly enough, a huge thunderstorm comes up and they're like, eh, Let's don't do it. It's dark. It's storming outside. they wanted to go out
1: there. They wanted to go to the place where the car blew up. That was their plan. And how long after the crimes was this again? She told the story probably 95,
2: 96, so I would think this would be early 90s. Okay. Maybe a couple years after the book came out?
1: Yeah. Something like that. early 90s. So six, seven years after the crime, you know, after the guy. Correct. Okay, got
2: it. Yeah. And she and her other friend the wife of this guy were kind of like, eh, do we really want to do this, guys? And the guys were really into it, but the thunderstorm saved them, so they didn't have to go. Well, a couple weeks later, they're finishing up the book, and she and the other guy who were reading it realize, you know what? The night that we were talking about doing this was the anniversary of when this happened. Okay. And we just didn't go because of the thunderstorm. So then whenever I'm talking to my work friend, this was just a few years ago, and she was telling me this story about this happening and that the reason she was coming home was this huge thunderstorm. It was just one of those weird little synchronicities. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, what? Wait, what? Type thing. So apparently there was a thunderstorm that came through severely that day. And whenever they were talking about it all these years later, we're going to go out there. They're like, so we're not going to go because there's a thunderstorm, but they don't realize this at the time that it is the anniversary. They only realize this a couple weeks later when they, when they get back together and it was
1: like, Oh my gosh. On top of it being the anniversary, the other synchronicity is that the night that he did this, there was also severe thunderstorms.
2: Uh, it, apparently he, were there this happened to during the day, but yes, there oh, were, Oh, were, they were forecast for that night. No, no, they were going to happen that day because again, the lady that I used to work with was my boss, she said she actually was coming home to let her dog in because she had left it, left it in the yard. So right. She's like, Oh my gosh, it's going to storm. Let me run home. Let the dog in before. So it's not caught in a storm. Right. And that's when she heard the explosion,
1: not only. Then but the storms weren't, hadn't come yet. But the, I guess what I'm saying, my point is is that the, the night that they were originally going to go was the anniversary mm-hmm. of the explosion of the vehicle. That's But correct. it was also similar weather Correct. from the day that the vehicle exploded. Summer thunderstorm. Yeah, yes. summer thunderstorm, which they happen here. It's that's right. not, not super uncommon, but that's still interesting. You know, we, we believe in coincidences, but they must not happen too much. That's right. right. So, yeah, okay.
2: That's exactly right.
1: It's Kara from It's a Jungle in Here. Are you as creeped out as I am? Let's get back to the show.
2: So at this point, when they get back together and they're talking about, oh, my gosh, wasn't that weird? Now the other guy, they had, she and this one, the guy who were reading the book, they both had finished at this point. Now their other friend is reading the book. And, of course, they get on this thing again, and they're having dinner one night. And after, you know, dinner, again, they're talking about, and and apparently this was, I think whenever they actually decided we're now going to go do this was maybe a couple months later or something like that. So after dinner one night, they decide we're going to do it. We're going to drive out there, and we're going to take the route that the police chase this guy down and the route that they followed. And they're basically the, you know, the guy who's driving was he had already finished the books. He's like, okay, this is what this happened. This is where this happened. And they get all the way down to the place where the car exploded. And I have actually been there, uh, me and a couple of buddies, the year after she told us the story decided we're going to drive down there and just see what this place looks like. And oddly enough, One of my buddies was like, yeah, my grandparents literally live the next road down. They remember when this happened. One of the kids who rode the school bus with me actually was at home and saw everything happen and the car explode. Apparently still has PTSD because of this just horrific type thing that happened that you would see is when you were a little kid. So they parked the car and the way that it that this road is, it is if you can picture in your mind, it's a country road. There are houses on it, but it's not just jam-packed. There's horse fields, there's pastures, there's fences, there's all the things you would think about in your typical country highway kind of things. A little two-lane road. And it kind of happens. It's like a little bit on like a curve, too. So they pulled off the road and she said, We got out and said it was a moonlit night. So she's like, We didn't have. Just like we'd just come from dinner. We didn't have flashlights. We weren't really preparing for this. It was just one of those dumb things you decide to do after you've had some drinks and dinner with friends. And this will be fun, right? Cool. Yeah. So they drive down there, and they get out, and they're walking down beside the fence. And the two guys were... Of course, guys, they were gung ho. They're like, yeah, let's go and let's check this out and let's go and, you know, let's just get over the fence and we'll kind of look around in here and see. I think maybe this is where like maybe the dogs were, you know, he threw out or whatever and blah, blah, blah. And they're talking. And the guy's wife and my friend, she was like, eh, I don't think we need to go down into this pasture and I don't think we need to kind of be staying around here. And uh, my friend was like, you know what? that's cool. I'll stay with you here by the fence. Let the guys go do their thing. And she's like, we're sitting there. And she's like, again, it's a moonlit night. We can see them. I don't know how far they were. My guess is probably like 30, 40 yards into the field. And she said, they're bending down. They're looking at something that looks maybe like a big rock or something there. And I said, all of a sudden they stand up and both just start running back to the fence. And, you know, the girls were looking at each other like, they're just trying to scare us. Right, We can see them. What else? And they get back to the fence and are like, oh, my gosh, did you see that horse? And the girls are like, uh, there was no horse. We can see you guys, okay? The, the, the moon's out. We could see you. There was no horse. And they're like, no, we were looking down and we looked up and I swear it looked like there was a horse standing over us guys there wasn't a horse you're just trying to scare us well my friend says as they're having this conversation looks over and she's like oh my gosh no look there is a horse i can see him it's like on the other side of the pasture and said sure enough when she's looking over she said there was a white horse standing kind of by the tree line on the other side of the pasture and she's like, guys, it's just a horse. And she's like, you know, like a fool. I stand up on the fence and I'm like, come here, horsey, you know, you know, doing the kissy noises and have my hand out and trying to coax the horse over. Well, the horse acknowledges and starts moving a little closer. And she said, the odd thing about it was, and she's like, I, it didn't look like it was moving very fast. It looked as though it was just very slowly ambling. It didn't trot over or anything like that, but said it was getting closer, but quicker than it should have been getting closer. And she's like, what was also weird is she's like, I don't know if it was mist, fog, whatever but there was something in the field that made it look like it kind of went in and out of focus a little bit. Like I kept losing it and then it would be closer. I would lose it a little bit, then it would be closer to the point where it was pretty close to the fence. And me and one of the guys were standing there looking and it turned and looked at us. And both of us at the same time basically said, guys, I don't think that's a horse. And at this point, I am <laughs> like, you know, arms on the table. Like, what yeah. was it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> tell. You know, She's yeah. like, honestly, I don't know. She's like, it had the body of a horse and it looked like a horse at a distance. But she's like, I'm here to tell you Tommy, when it looked at us, it did not look like a horse. Its face was not of a horse. It changed. I don't know. Um, But she said, the next thing I know is two of my, the the couple who were married are running towards the car. At this point, my other friend is going, we got to go now." now. So she's like, the two of us take off running too. And she's like, like a girl in a horror movie, I fall. And this guy is grabbing me, behind me, picking me up, going, we've got to go, what are you doing? We we, we got to go. You know, like, let's go. Let's get out of here. The other two are already back at the car. And she's like, I hurt my leg. She's like, yeah, I think she said she, like, tore her jeans, skinned her leg. When they get back to the car... Everybody was a little bit stunned, but this guy's like, what in the... What's going on? And the couple and my friend are all like, holy crap. Did you not hear that? And he's like, what are you guys talking about? It was like these thundering (laughs) hooves. It was almost like a stampeding behind us. And she said, the interesting thing was, I was like, so did you trip? She's like... I don't think I tripped. I felt something hit me. Whatever hit me knocked me down. And whenever my friend came back to pick me up, that's why he was like, what are you doing? We're like on the road. Why are, we, why are you tripping? You know, kind of thing. And she said, no. She's like, what I... Something felt like it hit me from behind and took my legs out. And whenever that happened, that's when the hooves the the stampeding sound, that's when it stopped. And the interesting thing was her friend did not hear the hooves, but the other couple who took off running ahead of them did. So three out of the four people heard this galloping, thundering hooves behind them. They were freaked. They jumped, they got in the car, they got out of there, they went back to the couple's house where they'd originally discussed all this, you know, several months ago but what they did is on the way out they got the they saw the address of the house that you know owned this field and back in those days you had to look in the telephone directory they called the house that night after they got back and she said it wasn't crazy late but it was probably you know maybe 9:30 10 and this lady answered and they had already concocted a story of Hey, we were driving by and we think that perhaps we saw a white horse outside of the fence and we just wanted to make sure that it hadn't gotten out. Do you by chance own a white horse? And so the lady got really exasperated tone in her voice and said, for the last time, we do not own a white horse. Click. So immediately they're like, you know, dialing back. The phone was busy. She took the taking the uh, receiver off the hook for the rest of the night
1: and she, they could not get back through. OK, one of the interesting things about it is and this is something that people have heard us talk about on the show before and you and me and Forrest are going to have a conversation about this in a few minutes, but it's not uncommon for only certain people in a party to hear sounds when they're related to a paranormal event. And so there's, that's a strange thing. And it, we're not really sure what that's about or how, why that happens, but it's very fascinating to me that three out of the four people heard the sounds and one didn't. And I think that has something to do with how prone you are to receiving something like this. Yeah, And maybe it has to do with your belief system or your whatever gateways that you have open in your consciousness. It's very fascinating. The other thing is that the running away and her falling and them hearing the galloping that happened outside of the fence that supposedly contained this that's creature that's correct whenever
2: she called or beckoned the horse over and it got within a certain you know distance of the fence all four of them were on the safe side of the fence you know they yeah. were they were on these on the outside of the fence right. um and I don't think that she, to my knowledge with the story she said that it It never ran at the fence like it was going to jump the fence or anything else. It literally was standing and just turned and looked at them. And at that point, they realized that it seemed to be something other than what it was. And that's when they took off. Um, So, yes, they were on the outside.
1: You know, the first thing that I thought of when you said they couldn't figure out what didn't have a horse face was the dog. Nightmare. And I brought this. I, I brought this up on the show before. This particular dog, the dog that is in the '70s version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I, with I Donald knew Sutherland. you were <laughs> going to say that. Oh my god! That it's, is a mix of the dog and a and a banjo playing homeless guy. <laughs> because it something went wrong during the body snatching. That was the first thing I thought terrifying. of. Terrifying. And, and our friend Rob Kristofferson, who's been on the show before, he and he has his own podcast, Our Strange Skies. He had had a thing where he saw a a kangaroo type creature that I think had a human face. He was like, I think I remember hearing yeah, a little bit about yeah. that. I think, and I, he's just I think like, well,
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kangaroo, human head, what yeah, ifs. that
1: happened. So before we move on to the next segment of the show, sure. the other thing I want to say is you, this person, your friend, you actually reached out to her. You hadn't talked to her in a while, and she was unavailable to come on the show, but you did reconnect with her recently, mm-hmm. and you told her the story as you remembered it. What did she say about the details that you were remembering? Was Is there anything that she felt didn't jibe with the story you just told?
2: She confirmed everything pretty close. The only thing that I had mixed up is that I didn't remember her saying that it Actually, she felt like it hit her. I remember her saying that she tripped and us kind of talking like, do you think that it hit you? Whatever. But I, I didn't realize that she said, no, no, I felt something hit me and knocked me over, knocked me forward. And that was the part that I was like, oh my gosh, I'm glad that I actually reached out and we talked about this. Everything else though, i you know, I kind of relayed the story as I remembered it to her and she was like, yes, yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. I can't believe that you remember this story, and I was like, "Well, this is one of my favorite stories, so I've told it a lot." So, uh, yeah, I I wish that she would be was able to make it tonight again. I, I know she has other stuff going on, but um, yes, yeah, she did confirm that everything, with the exception of that that part, and she also clarified that three of the four of them heard the hooves that the one
1: guy did not. Correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't you also ask her again about the face or whatever it looked like? And what did she say when you asked her about that?
2: Well, what she really wanted to do, and I'm still game to do this, if we can ever connect, yeah. is to, because I'm an illustrator too, uh, is to sit down almost police sketch yeah. style where she is would like to, you know, she's like, I could tell you kind of what it looked like and maybe you could draw it and maybe we could describe it that way. She didn't go into detail as far as like it was a human's head on a dog's body. Yeah. <laughs> there, yeah, yeah. There was yeah. none of that. Yeah. But uh she said that the body itself looked like a horse and said not until it literally looked Look, at looked them, them in the eye. It, you know what was was interesting is it reminded me almost in a way in a very abstract way of um the black eyed kids type stories, where People will be talking yeah. to them, they think, "Oh, little kid, and I'm just talking to a little kid, and then there's something that happens that they realize this is not what I thought it was
1: yeah and, and
2: like- oddly, most everybody is loves horses, i you know it's it's a very benign figure, little kids, it's a very benign figure, things that don't normally immediately strike fear in you. It's not like, "Oh, it looked like a Doverman pincher. and it, you know it's a little kid, oh, it's a horse." they're peaceful things and then when you get close whenever you're there for whatever that time limit is I don't know just the veil thin <laughs> is some does something happen that it's like oh I'm gonna reveal myself now who knows
1: all right so through the magic of editing and uh time travel we now have Forrest joining us Forrest welcome back to the Astonishing Legends <laughs>
0: <laughs> Good to see you two fellas again, even uh, if it's uh, digitally and over Zoom. Yes, and Great over to see you.
1: many thousands of miles. That's right. So Forrest, you just listened to the story, to Tommy's story, right? I wanted to know did, what your yes. first impressions of it were.
0: I've heard similar stories. There are elements of it which are sounding like other paranormal encounters that people I know have had. But of course, it's its own thing and it has its own creep factor and spoopiness. It's just that tied in with a true crime event, which is originally what you go wanting to check out, but it turns into something else. Are these things connected? And if so, how? It's a great story to tell around a dinner party, certainly. (laughs) Or lunch, I guess, uh, Tommy, that was the (laughs) occasion, right? Uh, uh, Yeah, What kind of a lunch was that?
2: Yeah, that's what was so crazy is that conversations drifted in and out of very normal kind of odd things or a ghost story here or there and as I was telling Scott this girl I've never heard say anything Mm -hmm. at all about anything odd she wasn't didn't seem to be into that sort of thing and this hit everybody at the table absolutely (laughs) out of the blue we were all (laughs) sitting
0: there with our mouths on the table going what is going on Usually these kinds of stories come out after a couple of rounds of drinks. Yeah. Not usually at lunch conversation, but it's interesting that you guys would normally talk about strange stuff during lunch. And
2: because the type of girl she was, it made it even more impactful. You know, she wasn't woo-woo or any weird things like that. It made it more impactful because she was pretty just straight
1: down the middle. He was recently back in touch with her and hadn't spoken to her in in over a decade, I think, at least, right? It had been close to 20 years. Close to 20 years. And she's like, yeah, but you've got it right. And da, 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 da. And then as we stayed in touch with her over the ensuing week or two, uh, she had moved back on, back into her life and wasn't like uh-huh. available to come in and tell it. And so that's what's fascinating to me too. It's like, oh, it's that moment that is really crazy, but I've got other stuff going on now. She was telling me
2: she had just started a new job, right, which had her going a completely different route back and forth to work. She had been working from home, and the new job that she had literally two weeks or so been into uh, had her going this new direction, and she went by somewhere close to where this happened. She's like, I thought about that story, and it is the first time I've thought about it in so long. A week later, you called.
1: Synchronicity. (laughs) She'd had it out of her mind for what, 10, 15 years or however much she didn't say, but then she drives by and then you call at my behest a week later and say, Hey, (laughs) remember this? And she's like, Oh yeah. But she had
0: just thought about it.
2: I was just, yeah. She's like, you're not going to believe this, but I was just thinking about this. I forgot about that. Wow. Wow.
0: What gears us to want to go out after dinner to go check out a place like this, especially when a possible thunderstorm is brewing other than just, it's a cool story. You know, what compels us to go do these things? But Tommy, let me ask you this. Were you very close with her during your work days together at the ad agency? Yeah, she was one of my closest friends at the agency.
2: Mm-hmm. There was a group of about four or five of us who were very close. We would get together for lunches almost, you know, it's the lunch crew right? that you would right. get together with every day and you You know, you saw them daily. So, yeah, we saw each other all the time. But oddly enough, after that day, we really didn't talk about that story anymore. We told the, you know, she told the story. (laughs) I thought it was a great story. I remembered it. I remember telling it to other friends. But she and I never really discussed it further. I guess in the original telling of the story whenever I was telling Scott that uh, two guys who I worked at at the same with at the same agency ended up going out to that space of, About a year or so later, just to check it out one night, because Mm -hmm. we're like, Mm -hmm. okay, we have to see exactly where this place is. (laughs) And one of the guys I drove with said, oh, I know exactly where it is. My grandparents live down the street. They remember when this happened. And he said, I can vividly remember driving to my grandparents to visit them and seeing this crater in the road for a while.
0: Yeah, I would imagine. So an explosion that large did leave a crater, possibly debris still around. I wouldn't doubt it. Yeah. But this friend of yours, it's someone you would vouch for as being trustworthy. You knew her pretty well. Yes. Just to clear that up for people, you know, absolutely. Because <laughs> there's there's always that person in the office. Even if you go out to lunch every day, it's like, I don't know about this. And they they tell a lot of tall tales, but it's not something like that at all.
2: No, she was pretty much a straight arrow in that regard. I mean, I was expecting uh something that would almost be a non story, not Right. In a disparaging way, but just something that wouldn't be as spooky as it was. And after she told it, I could not believe that this was like. I was thinking to myself, "This is a honest to goodness paranormalish <laughs> kind of situation." And yeah, yeah. even the other people who were telling stories, I mean, all of us were taken by the story. I mean, but yeah,
0: yeah. it's somebody I saw every day. Totally vouch for right. And did she not want to? tell the story again to relive it, or was it just a scheduling thing, why she didn't want to come back and tell it herself? I don't know. It felt more
2: of a scheduling thing. I know she had a lot going on, but she could have just been... Being really nice. <laughs> also. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And just saying, yeah, I've got stuff going on.
1: You know, the other thing is a, like a loss of interest, I think, or maybe not an interest in telling it. Like, oh, well, I just told you, because she said to Tommy, you can tell the story. You got it right. So, yeah. You know. Yeah. Not everybody that something like this happens to is like us. And it's like, oh, we got to dissect this. And I'm going to talk about it forever. And all. <laughs> right. I, th- I think a lot of times, and that's something that we've noticed, you know, people are like, things are happening to people. And they're like, yeah, I mean, I, I saw a UFO. There was... A purple jelly bean yeah. got out of it. He smiled at me and got back in and said, you know, um, uh, I got to go to the grocery store. When something this outrageous happens, everybody takes it
0: differently. You know, that's according to your personality and how much it affected you. Possibly there are some PTSD elements, uh, depending on how traumatic the experience was. And uh, it just depends. Everybody's different about how they want to handle it and how they want to remember it. And, and if they want to bring it up again, I, in case in point, I remember when I reached out to Dan Pavanmayer to talk about... Similar thing. A story I heard way back at USC, you know, 25 years ago. And I I reached out to him uh, where I actually met up with him at this function for a mutual friend of ours. And I said, do you you remember that story you told, you know, at the USC Daily Trojan news office? And I, I just, it was like after lunch kind of things. And it just blew my mind at the time. And he goes, do I remember it? I think about it every day. For the past 25 years. Yeah. yeah. And
1: for our listeners, Dan Pavenmeyer is the gentleman that we had on. We did a show on Missing Time and he came on. He's also the guy that co-created Phineas and Ferb, but he came on and told that story on our show.
0: Yeah. He was willing to come on and talk about it. Wasn't afraid. He's, he's like, yeah, I've thought about what happened and why. And, and that's the kind of personality he is. He, he wants to understand what happened to him, not just then, but a, a few more times with the same person, which is Rich Haddam's wife. And they were good friends at the time. And she was a witness to this. So that's another thing I like about this story. There are multiple witnesses that this thing is happening to or happened to. And so you, you get some different perspectives on it.
1: The other thing though, was as we were talking about that, we had a roundtable discussion about this missing time story that Dan experienced. Mm -hmm. Richard Haddam, our frequent guest was there along with his wife. There was a component of that discussion that when we started to break it down and it went into directions that he did not like, he said, no, I don't think that's what happened. Yeah. It's kind of like, I want it to be this thing and not that thing, which is, you know, and he's still freaked out so by So he got it. uncomfortable. Yeah. I would say it was say, uh, very subtle, but it was yeah. like, no, it wasn't that. I don't want to think it's that. I mean, he was joking about it a little bit, but like- hmm.
0: There is some of that, but also the perspectives and memories and the in the moment experiences of these two people having the same experience at the same time differed slightly. That's also part of the phenomenon, which I, I liked about this story here, and that some people saw the horse- Others didn't. Some people heard the thundering hooves. One person didn't. That seems to be uh, some common elements to this. But getting back to how people react, I just want to say this. On the, on the other hand, we had on my good friend, Todd, who talked about, uh, it's a reverse vanishing hitchhiker story that he had when he was in college with a good friend. They were hitchhiking their way up the coast to Washington State at the time to go to a music festival. And they hitch a ride with this really nice older couple, you know, who asked them a bunch of questions, weirdly one about uh, Edgar Casey a lot, they, if, if they'd heard of him and, and what they thought of him. And they, they get let out at this uh, stretch of road. I think the people said, uh, well, we have to go now. We can let you out here. So like, thanks. They get out of the car. They set their packs down. They're looking down, setting the, you know, their straps and all that. Look up a moment later and the car's gone. So they're not the ones who vanished, the car vanished. Wow. So I wanted to get Todd's perspective on it. I love that story. And I asked him, can you get a hold of your friend to get his perspective? Maybe it's a little different. And he goes, yeah, let me, let me try. I haven't talked to him in years, but let me call him up. And then uh, I come to find out, he's like, yeah, I, I asked him about that experience that, you know, was always stuck with me. And he said, I don't remember. I don't want to talk about it. Hmm. That's another way to take it. I don't know if he didn't remember or just freaked him out so much. He just said that didn't happen. Yeah. maybe he didn't remember all the details and was fuzzy. And it's just like, yeah, I don't want to dig that up. It yeah. was just so weird. Whereas Todd is, we've always talked about that kind of stuff. He's very open to it. We we talk about that kind of stuff all the time. So he's very comfortable with discussing weird things like that that happen.
2: Well, and it's like with my friend. I mean, she and I had probably a forty-five minute conversation on the phone whenever we reconnected. Mm-hmm. I thought that she was pretty on board to do that, but you know, the thing that occurred to me afterwards though, and whenever I know that she got busy was I thought, you know, out of the four, she was the one who was kind of targeted by this. She was the one who had coaxed the horse over what she thought to be the Mm -hmm. horse. She was the one who felt that it truly made contact with her, knocked her down. Maybe there's something to that too. It's like it, for some reason it, I was the one out of the four that it happened to really engage with. And maybe there's that, maybe there was some uncomfortable with that as well. Hi, I'm Tristan Fuller. T-R-I-S-T-A-N-F-U-L-L-E-R.
0: Well, to recap for myself and our listeners during that night, which is the thunderstorm night? Or no, actually, it was it was later because that night it got too stormy. They decided not to go. That's correct. But then they realized later that the thunderstormy night was the anniversary of the explosion event. Yes. So then they ended up going. Uh, was it a couple of weeks later?
2: Honestly, I don't remember how far in the future it was. I, I'm gonna right. <laughs> I'm gonna say a couple weeks to a couple months. I'm not sure. Okay.
0: Just not the next night or anything. It it was right, right. some time later. My friend and her other
2: buddy had already finished reading the book, and the other guy ah, right. in the foursome had started reading the book, and that's kind of what had reignited it the night that they, the mm-hmm. four of them went out to eat. Hey, I'm reading it now, and oh, right. great. And that's where it all sort of came back up again.
0: How many other people actually went on this trip to go look at the explosion site?
2: So there were four of them. It was my friend... And a guy friend of hers, and then mm-hmm. there was a married couple that the four of them always got together. What happens is that they they get there. Who stays back with the car who didn't really want
0: to go down there?
2: The way it was told to me is that they had parked on the side of the road and they all got out of the car and walked to the fence. If you can um, picture a curved road mm-hmm. where there is right off the road a, a horse fence and they walked down to the fence. The way she told it is the guys actually climbed over the fence. She and the guy's wife decided to stay at the fence. Like, we're not going okay. any further. The two guys were the ones like, let's go and explore this a little further. <laughs> right. She said it was a moonlit night. So they were able to see them, you know, again, they weren't mm-hmm. really prepared to go searching for anything. It was just, let's just drive by. And they pulled off the road and, and, That's where she stayed, was at the
0: fence. Did they go into the field because that's where the actual explosion happened, or they were just poking around the field?
2: I think they were just poking around the field. She said that the guys were trying to figure out where debris had fallen because the guy had killed his two kids and the dog, Mm -hmm. and they had heard stories that things were just kind of
0: everywhere. So they were kind of exploring around possibly looking to see if there's any debris left. I mean, the hole or the crater that was caused by the explosion, that was been long since filled because that's probably either was on the road or to the, by the side of the road, right?
2: Yeah. The photos that I've seen, it looks pretty much in the road or right beside the road.
0: So then they get down in the field. It looks like they're looking at maybe a rock or something has caught their attention in the grass, in the pasture.
2: She, yeah. She said she can see the the two of them bent down, that they're looking at mm-hmm. something and she and her friend were watching them and said, all of a sudden, the guys got up and just started sprinting back to the fence. They look at each <laughs> other going, they're trying to scare us. You know, they just, they just knew <laughs> right, because sure, they're like, we sure. can see you. We can see you down yeah. there. And we know that there's nothing there. And they came back and were like, did you see that horse? We were looking mm-hmm. down and we looked up and swear it looked like a horse was standing looking over us. And they were both, you know,
0: the two girls were saying, guys. <laughs> yeah. we can see you there's nothing <laughs> yeah. there promise okay so that's fascinating the guys down in the pasture they think the horse or some kind of horse creature is standing how far away from them like like five ten feet like that close she described it as they
2: looked up and it was right on them it was wow it startled them now they from what she said, thought it was a horse. They thought, right. yeah, it was a horse. They didn't think that it was anything other than that. But it startled mm-hmm. them, and they took
0: off. If it was a real horse, it sidled up silently to them and <laughs> uh, it was right there suddenly when, as you know, they walked down into the pasture. There's nothing there. Suddenly, there's now a horse ten feet away. Right after they ran back, then your friend she could then also see this horse creature. Yeah, she said after, you know, they
2: were going back and forth about, no, no, it was, oh, you were just trying to scare us. Stop trying to scare us. My friend said she happened to look into the pasture and she said, "No, really, there look, there is a horse. It's a white horse. Wow. Now you can see it down by the tree line." <laughs> you know, almost as she was going, "No, these maybe these guys were telling the truth and we just didn't see it." You know, that kind of a thing. Yeah. That's what she originally, I guess, had thought and
1: she right. said that's when she got up onto the fence and started calling it earlier. You had said, having just heard it, that you thought that only three out of the four maybe saw it, but all four people saw the horse, right?
2: Yes, only three heard it. That's correct. And she said she okay. was up on the fence going, Look, guys, it's just a horse. And she right. starts doing the come here, horsey, you know,
0: and yeah. doing the yeah. little that's fascinating kind of thing, right? But but once she could see it now. I guess her and then the uh, the other female companion in the group, now all four people can see it. So the two guys and the and the two women now can see the horse. Right. And my point earlier though was uh the thundering hooves, which come later, three out of the four people could hear that. One person could not. Right. One thing Scott and I always try to do is um uh, make connections to things we've heard before. And the fact that that's a very common thing where they see this thing maybe trotting or it's not galloping, it's not moving that fast, but it seems to be moving faster than the legs are moving. That's
2: the way she described is that it looked like it was just sort of slowly ambling up, but it was getting to her much quicker than she would have thought given the distance it originally was and said right. that it looked as though, and, she, and and again, she was saying maybe this was mist, maybe there was some fog in the field, but I seem to keep losing it a little bit. It's like it would appear closer, and then it would kind of phase out a little bit, and then it would appear wow. even closer, and until it was very close to the
0: fence. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty freaky, and it reminds me of the story we didn't cover. It's our our, uh, our good friends, Adam and Matt over at Graveyard Tales when they did the missing 411 and they covered a story. It was a guy who uh, was uh, offered his full real name. He's a grad student where he had an encounter at this park. Uh, uh, he was with his fiance and out on a trail and he, the fiance gets ahead of him on the trail. He's left behind and he gets this really bad feeling like something bad is coming down the trail no one else is around in the park. He turns around and, you know, he feels like something's looking at him or or catching up to him. He turns around and it's a middle-aged woman dressed in, you know, like a sweatpants and a a hoodie, uh, very nondescript. And she's walking, but she's coming at him much faster than her legs appear to be moving. And he said, that's the thing that freaked him out. Like what's going on here? And then she looked startled, whatever this thing was. And you, you know, you talked about black eyed kids and these weird encounters with things that seem like what you're supposed to imagine they are, but they're not really close. You know, he said everything about her looked really normal, but, you know, like she's walking slowly, but it'd be like if she were, you know, doing a, a, a jog, and yeah. she's just coming up on him, and, and this thing stops because it was like, well, you're not supposed to look back and notice me, and that he just took off at that point and uh, got around the bend, caught up, uh, you know, with his fiance. Yeah, so he just took off running and left this person... In the trail. <laughs> I think this this woman, or whatever it was, just stopped at her tracks and like was startled too. Like, or just like, whoa, you can see me. Or it didn't get a chance to sneak up on him fully. So he gets around the bend, meets up with his fiance. They I think they both go back, and of course, she's nowhere to be found. 15, 20 minutes later, and again, I'm trying to remember this as I heard it just on their podcast, Graveyard Tales. They come back uh 10, 15 minutes later, some other people, hikers, and he said, Hey, Did you see a woman? And like, no. She just kind of disappeared. But do you wonder, is that something you're supposed to see? Why did it throw some kind of energy force field down and and knock your friend down? Uh, What was that about? Did it just want you out of there?
1: And what's the connection to the true crime that happened? Right. That's the big question to me. We should talk about the crime a little bit more in a little bit more detail because I do have more details than since when Tommy and I first sat down. The first Mm -hmm. thing to say, Forrest, is that Tommy and I rode out there. We rode out there with his son, Jake, and I actually set up some cameras Mm -hmm. in my car and we filmed it. So I'm going to try to put that together. It's going to be a week or two because I'm getting ready to go to the beach for a week. But after that, okay, after that, I'm going to put that together. I'm going to cut that together. I'm going to put it up on our YouTube channel. Won't be super long, but you'll see where it mm-hmm. happened. the The day we did this, which was Monday, we're recording on uh, Wednesday, uh, May twelfth. Now, this was Monday, May tenth. We went out there. There was really, really bad thunderstorms. Uh Whoa. Yeah. around, around <laughs> three, three o'clock. o'clock. Yeah, yeah. Really. Wait bad. a second. Is three o'clock when the three o seven is when the car blew up?
0: Right? Oh my goodness!
1: And I have video. They were over by my house. I live south of Tommy. They mm, were over by mm. my house around 3.40 or 4, which means they were over in that area right around 3 o'clock, right around the time. Mm, yeah.
2: So, I had coworkers who were losing power, talking about hail, all kinds of stuff. <laughs>
1: yeah. It was crazy. And I, I filmed some of that storm, which I'll have in the video, as it went came over to my neck of the woods, although I'm, I'm 10 or 15 minutes from there. So we piled in the car, and we drove out to where this place was. Now, by then, the weather had cleared, and I was really disappointed. It was just a beautiful day, beautiful, <laughs> just the sunniest, happiest, most gorgeous field you've ever seen when we got there. Yeah. But not very creepy at all. I joked with uh, Tommy that I was going to get uh, Joshua to put some foreboding thunderclouds into the sky for it. Maybe <laughs> you were, so you strikes. were
0: disappointed, the, I was disappointed. The, the special effects element of the background or, or yeah, scene it didn't do had disappeared, needed. had it yeah, faded. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah.
1: The, here's the thing. We went out there. We found the exact spot. We have an article here from the uh, News & Record, which was where Jerry Bledsoe, the, the journalist who wrote the book that was the uh, the New York Times bestseller, Bitter Blood, mm-hmm. He was at the News and Record. He's retired now. I'm sorry. What's the name of the newspaper again? We'll have the Greensboro that, uh, News and Record. Gotcha. So this is a follow-up piece that came out on May 31st of 2015 by a journalist uh, named Margaret Moffett. Which I know her. Oh, you know her? Oh, uh, well, mm. cool. That's good. So she won't mind me reading a bunch of this, right? <laughs> Margaret probably won't. She's great. <laughs> okay,
2: awesome. See, it's you know so what's great hilarious is when you sent me that article, I yeah. didn't even pay attention to who thought there was a
1: just said that. <laughs> oh, this is so great. So yeah, there's a picture here for us, which I'll show you just mm-hmm. here on Zoom real quick, but we probably won't be able to post this without permission, but I might be able to ask for permission from the news and record. Mm-hmm. There's one paper I can actually get in touch with. It's the aftermath of the explosion. Wow. Jeez.
0: Yeah, that's quite a debris field.
1: Yeah, so we went to this exact spot. We figured this out with the telephone poles. We rode back and forth past it like 15 times, don't worry, I'll edit it yeah. down. Yeah, and you could tell and Tommy very astutely made the observation. I was like, "Oh, these trees are too short." And he was like, mm-hmm. "Yeah, this was 1985." And it's like, "Oh, yeah, duh. They're like tall trees now." So we we figured out exactly where this was happening. Uh, like I said, I'll post that video. I do have a picture that I took of the three of us, which I've already sent to you. It's rack focused because it's in portrait mode, but I can sharpen the background. The field behind me and Tommy and his son Jake Uh, is the field and it's the fence. It's right behind us where this happened. The thing that is startling about it is that where this story takes place and where this crime ended with this explosion, it's the exact, exact same spot. It's not Mm. like down the road. It's not up the road. It's not around the bend. It's the exact spot. They were at the right spot, Mm. Tommy's friends when they went there. And that's where this horse was in the field or whatever it was with the weird face. <laughs> but I want to read some of these highlights from the article about the crime, because I I was looking into this. It is just astronomical. Over, all in all, nine people were killed, but they weren't mm-hmm. all killed that day. They were killed over the course of a few years.
0: Who is, I mean, yeah, I want to know who this guy is. Never heard of him. I had not, of course, uh, heard of the the events. And uh, the crimes, but he sounds like a horrible and also fascinating character.
1: Our listeners know we're not a true crime show. We, you know, we've done a few Mm -hmm. true crimes, but not really. This is better suited for our friends at Generation Y or somewhere else. And maybe somebody has covered this, um, but I want to encourage them to, if they haven't, actually, I might reach out to those guys and see if they want to cover this. Also, uh, that's why we drink. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, right. Christine and uh, M
0: and Christine on the case and uh, see what, uh, they may may have some in their archives, but we'll suss that all out. Yeah, yeah, we should uh, check that out.
1: It's a truly amazing story. Mm -hmm. So Fritz Klinner, the gentleman that committed the crime He was very wealthy, uh, or came from a wealthy family, I should say. He wasn't enjoying the wealth, but uh, he was involved in a relationship, and this bothers me to have to admit this to you, because you're always joking Mm. with me about the South, but... uh, I this was a not. case of two first cousins having an affair <laughs> well, <that's,
0: laughs> hey look you know uh it's it was good enough for the royal families of uh, of europe it should be good yes. enough for uh north carolina but i i never joke about that kind of stuff that's no. other people but yeah first cousins it's a little
2: close in the article, they even talked about her being called the princess. Yes, being called the <laughs> princess. she really yes. was into the royal family. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. And so, pretty close on that one. I'm not yeah. going to read
1: the whole thing, but we'll have an, a link to it for people that can get to it. There is, um, I think, a subscription paywall, but I got into it on one of my browsers without mm. that. Mm-hmm. It's about Frederick Fritz Klinner Jr. His dad's name was also Fred Klinner, who was notable for being the guy that pioneered heavy dosing of vitamin C and claimed uh, that I've heard
0: of that. Yeah. Yeah. He
1: claimed it could cure polio, all kinds of things that apparently in the medical community was completely unsubstantiated, but he had a practice in uh, North Carolina and there were a lot of people that Mm -hmm. bought into his treatments for things, which is in a weird way, how Fritz met Susie, who was with him that day when the car blew up because she had been sent in to see him What's interesting is that they were related. The article doesn't mention that that they were, you know, family was like, you need to go see Fritz Klinner. It was the dad that was doing the vitamin C stuff, but Fritz was also practicing medicine. He claimed to be graduated from Duke University, all of that, but it was all a lie. It was all, mm. uh, as Tommy said uh, to, in, to me in the car on the way over here, it was a little bit of a catch me if you can situation yeah, where he was just making everything up about finishing school, having a medical degree, all that stuff. So, I just want to read a couple of excerpts here from uh, Margaret Moffett's article, which was published May 31st, 2015. She says, They weren't especially close growing up. This is Susie Sharp Newsom and Frederick Fritz Klinner Jr. Despite being first cousins, they lived in different towns and had different interests. Susie, called Susie Q, was named after her aunt, Susie Sharp, who was a North Carolina judge who was the country's first elected female Chief Justice of a state Supreme Court. Mm. Susie Q's mother, Florence Newsom, was the justice's sister. So this is how they got to be first cousins, and it's going to make more sense here in a minute. But also Susie was apparently spoiled. She had radical temper tantrums. Sounded like she was not well healed. And um, as Tommy said, obsessed a little bit with the British royal family and very much Mm. a a debutante, well-connected, lots of suitors when she was in Mm -hmm. school. Fritz's mom was Annie Hill Sharp Clinner. She was... Florence Newsom's sister, and then the other sister was the judge. So these folks Mm -hmm. are all connected. So Fritz's dad, well, let's just say he was a very polarizing gentleman. I see.
0: Is there literature to read up on... About him.
1: Yeah, this article has uh, some background on him. He was a racist and uh, mm. hated communists and, you know, just write write down whatever that list, you, however you finish that list out. I see. Susie had been at Wake Forest University and she met a basketball player named Tom Lynch and he was doing fairly well. They got married, even though Tom Lynch's mom could not stand Susie. They got married and he went to dental school and eventually... During all that time, the mother, Dolores, was not allowed to see them or their kids when they had them, her own grandkids. Dolores would be the first one that would be murdered along with her daughter in a strange, almost like a professional hit in Kentucky. And that was the first crime that went down. Um, That was July 24th, 1984. So that was uh, when Tom found out that somehow, mysteriously, his mom and sister had been killed at their house in Kentucky. It looks like, or it doesn't look like. Now we know that that Fritz Klinner did that, but that was in 1984 before the car blows up and all that kind of stuff. So basically, they're they're having this relationship. Fritz is lying not only about being medical school; he's telling all these lies about being in the CIA. A just real kind of run of the mill, almost <laughs> cliche. It's like Bill Paxton's character in True Lies, right? The car salesman.
0: <laughs> well, you always got to have the uh, the CIA <laughs> angle because yeah. uh, you know secret agents is is, is always a good. Uh, bullet point on your CV.
1: Yeah, exactly. Fritz was, him and Susie got really close and he he wound up taking out most of her family. And on top of that, in the end, he wound up killing her two kids that she had had with Tom, the dentist. They were in the car. They got into the car under their own power, according to the article, unless I'm mistaken. So at some point after they got in the car, they gave them cyanide. And then on top of that, shot them in the head which is horrific. Wait, when you
0: say they...
1: Uh, Susie and Fritz poisoned Susie's own two boys that she had had with Tom, the dentist. Do we know that they were in collusion? Susie and Fritz. Susie left Tom. He had a dental practice in Albuquerque and she hated Albuquerque. So she came back with mm-hmm. the kids to North Carolina.
2: And it seemed as though Fritz was really filling her head full of... He's lying to you. He's out to get you. They were in the article. They even speak about whenever he would try to give gifts to his two kids, you know, and, or, or see mm-hmm. them or anything that they would immediately get rid of the gifts or if food or anything was brought over, it would be thrown away because he said it's probably poisoned. Mm-hmm. Just really yeah.
1: filling her head with a lot of craziness. But we do know that they, they acted together. Yes, we did In this yes. crime. We know that they acted together. And then what happened too was with Tom, the dentist, yeah, after they got divorced, then Susie's parents said, no, we want you to maintain a relationship with these two boys, with the kids. And they had been reaching out to Susie's parents. And then in May of 1985, May 18th of 1985, Fritz killed Susie's parents took them out of the picture. Mm -hmm. Anybody that was trying to keep Tom in the picture was going to come out of the picture. Now, here's the crazy thing about that. Fritz enlisted the help of a young man who was only 21 at the time who believed all the CIA stuff and told him that he needed a ride to go kill some communists in Winston-Salem. So the young man gave him a ride and apparently, and even the police thought this in the investigation, took it all hook, line, and sinker. He thought he was on a covert Mm -hmm. operation, he took Fritz to Winston-Salem. Fritz gets out of the car, goes half a mile, and kills uh, Susie's parents. Fritz does the killing himself. Fritz does the yeah. killing. The, 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 yeah. the young guy thinks he's on a test mission. Yeah.
0: Oh, geez. So he's obviously a sociopathic narcissist uh, who can spin a story, and he's very affable. Not a Frank Abigdale, but somebody who can spin a story and get people to believe it. But he's also uh, homicidal.
1: Right. How did he not get caught for the the murder of Susie's parents? Well, this is a thing. They were breathing down his neck. There was an investigation was Mm. up and running and the uh, investigators got on to the young guy and said, hey, you know what's happening? You're in deep dookie. You Mm -hmm. need to wear a wire. They convinced the guy to wear a wire. So he's apparently going to put a wire on and go and try to get Fritz to confess on the wire. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a point at which he had met with Fritz a couple of times, couldn't get him to say anything. Then I'm going to read this excerpt from the article. About 1 p.m. on Monday, June 3rd, uh, this gentleman, the the young guy's wearing the wire. He meets with Klinner a third time with the wire on. He climbed into the passenger seat of Klinner's blazer outside a discount department store on Cone Boulevard here in town called Zayers. They're not around anymore. He was terrified Fritz would see the wire and kill him. Instead, Fritz came as close as he ever would to confessing. A statement recorded by the wire said this, quote, I'll write a paper saying you were not knowingly involved. That you believed you were on a covert mission for the government. I've got things to do. I won't see you again. End quote. What this young guy didn't know at the time and couldn't have known is that that very moment he was sitting on top of a bomb in the car under the passenger seat that was going to be blown up two hours later. Wow. So that's how close uh, they were. They got that wire. They've got, and so as the car left, the cops went after. Unmarked cars. they doing all this. They're going mm-hmm. to track him down. They corner him. They stop him out there on the main drag, out near the area where it all ended up. And this one particular officer, Tommy Dennis, mm-hmm. not Tommy Beaver, uh, <laughs> T-bones him. And he's like, I've yeah. got him now. I've stopped the car. He T-bones him. And he looks up, and Fritz is pointing an, an Uzi at Tommy Dennis, the policeman, and it just unleashes the Uzi into the car uh, that wait, the cop's wait, in.
0: automatic fire? Automatic it's, fire. Yeah.
1: Okay, the second question here. Yeah. Where does he get the bomb? How does he know to make one if he made it himself? Where do you get an automatic Uzi? I'll get to that in a second. But yeah, so okay. he unloads okay. on the cops. Cops are getting wounded. Tommy Dennis's uh, wife insisted that he wear a bulletproof vest. If he hadn't had it mm. on, he would have died that day. He did still get wounded, you know, I think around, you know how they always slip around the armpit there or somewhere into the arm or whatever, but he survived. And so at this point, somehow Fritz gets away and that's when the chase really starts, which is a 15 minute chase, low speed, 15 minute low speed chase uh, for people not from LA, you know, there's high speed chase and the low speed chase, (laughs) low speed (laughs) chase, so know, like OJ, that was a low speed chase, Right. But then you get the high speed chase or, you know, another good low speed chase was the Killdozer. That guy was that. That's a great documentary, by the way. Oh, The Tread. The Tread. Yes. This is also reminding me
0: of the uh, uh, homicidal megalomaniac from Murder Among Mormons. If you remember that guy. yeah, Having just this fantasy ideal about himself, you know, being smart enough to be able to create a bomb and also blowing himself up in the car but surviving that.
1: Yeah, yeah, he survived that. That's weird, isn't it? Well, so, all right, so yeah. listen to this. Getting towards the end of this here. Fritz appeared boxed in by all the cars, but managed to escape. He pulled the Blazer. It was a small uh, Chevy Blazer. They used to come in two sizes for people that don't remember. Oh, yeah, the Blazer 2. Yeah, yes. the, well, I don't <laughs> think they called it the 2. Didn't they call it the... It wasn't a K-5. Uh, I, K-5 was the big yeah, one. Yeah, there
2: was the Bronco No, two. No, no, no.
1: Bronco I, 2. Well,
0: there was a Bronco 2, but it was. It, they looked like they were the same uh, footprint or bed. Yes, you know, they were the, smaller, the smaller, but still this, a blazer. Right.
1: Yeah, so he's in this car. He's going out onto New Garden Road, a road here in Greensboro, followed by lots of cops. He creeps along New Garden, then turns north on a Battleground Avenue and into Summerfield, uh, the neighborhood we mentioned earlier, slowing several times to open fire on the officers behind him, then mm-hmm. turned east onto NC-150, Residents heard the rat-a-tat-tat of machine gun fire as Fritz stopped near Bronco Lane. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, Tommy. (laughs) There were some clicks and then the blazer exploded. Debris fell to the ground in a million little pieces obscured by plumes of white smoke. A radio call one of the police officers made from his car marked the time 3.07 p.m. A little bit of a trigger warning, or for any people that don't want to hear, this is a little bit gruesome towards the end of this, so mm-hmm. just giving you a warning to skip ahead about 15 seconds if you don't want to hear this. But this occurred. This is, was published in the News & Record, 2015. Officers surveyed the area carefully, fearing they might trip other bombs. Most would say they had never seen anything more gruesome. Susie lay in a culvert, her lower body blown apart from the bomb that detonated beneath her. The boys were upright in the remains of the blazer's back seat, the dog between them. Investigators wouldn't learn until days later that they already were dead when the bomb exploded, poisoned with cyanide, then shot in the head by their mother. Fritz survived, but just briefly. A detective from Kentucky found him breathing. So this is probably a cop who was on site trying to solve the very first murder of Mm -hmm. the dentist's parents in Kentucky. He bent and turned his ear toward Fritz hoping for a confession. Instead, Fritz gurgled blood and died. Within moments, the sky turned black. Wind, lightning, and torrential rain again had officers taking cover, and in the tempest, hail the size of marbles pelted the lifeless bodies of Susie and Fritz, the princess and the protector. I want to talk to Margaret. She's a great writer. You'll like her. Yeah. (laughs) Margaret's great. So uh, here's the timeline in this article. Mid-1976, that's when Susie and the dentist moved to Albuquerque, where Tom Lynch joined a dental practice. 1979, mm-hmm. Susie leaves her husband and returns with the boys to her parents' home in Greensboro this July of 79, almost exactly when I moved to North Carolina from Colorado, actually. Oh, I forgot about this. It was an interesting tidbit from the article. Briefly, I guess Susie got a little stir-crazy again here in Greensboro and moved to China for six months to teach English. Hmm. Hmm. So then um, there's a battle from 1980 to 82 over the visitation rights for the kids with the dad from Albuquerque. And then mid-1982, Susie has reconnected with first cousin Fritz and develops a romantic relationship with him. December 82, Susie and her first husband, the dentist, Tom Lynch, are divorced. July 24th, 84, that's when Tom's mother and sister are found killed professional hit style in Prospect, Kentucky. May 1985, the young gentleman I mentioned before, believing he is part of a covert CIA mission, drives Fritz to and from Hattie Newsom's home in Winston-Salem. May 19th, the next day, the bodies of Hattie, Bob, and Florence Newsom are discovered. That would be uh, Susie's parents and grandmother. Now, at this point, six people have been murdered. And we can assume at this point,
0: though, that Susie Q is aware of Fritz <laughs> doing these hits on her immediate family. I mean, it would be
1: good if we had read bitter blood, but to based on based on yeah. what Tommy is saying, <laughs> right. both our assessment yeah. is that he was filling her head with lies. So she may have been brainwashed mm. or a little bit controlled, but she's definitely complicit, brainwashed or not. If she was estranged from her
0: immediate family. You might be able to see where she didn't get any news of them, of their welfare, didn't know they'd been killed. But it's then also hard to believe that she didn't know that, uh, wait a second, her former in-laws had been murdered and now her parents and grandmother. Yeah. By the time she gets in the car for this final act of desperation, that she's aware that obviously he did the bumping off.
1: Right. I mean, that's the thing. And the investigation says that she shot the kids. I don't know how they figured that out, but you wouldn't claim that. If they didn't know who shot the kids, they wouldn't say that. So they know that she shot the kids. Uh, They might not know who gave them cyanide. Horrible. But anyway, here's Mm. what they found near the blazer after it blew up. There's a list here, again, with this article. One Uzi with a shell jammed in the chamber, a pistol with a shell in the chamber, two semi-automatic pistols, two shotguns, an assault rifle, bandolier straps for holding ammunition, I guess Chewbacca style, knives, handcuffs, smoke grenades, brass knuckles, choke wires, and martial arts weapons. Then in the apartment shared by these two, an M6 combination rifle shotgun, an assault rifle, an automatic pistol, various shotguns and pistols, knives, mace, and martial arts weapons, gas masks, bulletproof vests, and gun holsters, a box of gold and silver jewelry, pearls, $1,219 in cash, gold Krugerrands, and bars of silver. In another house, Fritz's mother's house six shotguns, one machine gun, seven pistols, five semi-automatic rifles, one and a half cases of dynamite, plus black caps and 28 pounds of black powder, 35 smoke and tear gas grenades, two live remote-controlled mines. This doesn't say this here, but I remember it from somewhere else that I read. They were claymores.
0: Yeah, they're anti-personnel uh, directional charges, uh, or you could call them a shape charge, but uh, yeah, they were basically meant to take out people as they their fragmentation... I believe and you can uh, detonate them remotely with a uh, with a little clicker. But here's the thing, where did he get all this stuff? Because I I'm starting to see this personality. We've seen this before. This is not a new thing. Again, going back to Murder Among Mormons and I uh, will have to, I can't remember the guy's name, but that type of personality because he also played around with Soldier of Fortune type, you know, was into automatic weapons, somehow got got a hold of one. Now back then, I'm sure it's, uh, hopefully clamped down some more, but if you knew what you were doing, you could find pieces and, and buy them maybe on a gray market or, uh, you know, through the grapevine parts that if you knew how to replace them in a semi-automatic weapon, cause you could, I think at some point legally purchase a semi-automatic Uzi, which is, means it's single fire. It's just like a short rifle at that point. But if you knew how to file some pieces down or, or find these replacement pieces and you knew a little bit about gunsmithing, you could, uh, fashion these weapons to go automatic yourself. But that takes a lot of, uh, a little bit of knowledge. And what was this guy doing? You know, was that just part of his MO where he maybe thought he was some kind of, uh, secret agent or just loved the, uh, the mythos and a lifestyle? What was his aim here? Because this is like insurrection stuff.
2: Well, I will tell you, I mean... In the mid-80s, around here, it was very easy. I, my dad was a gun collector, a knife collector, yeah. and we would go to gun and knife shows all the time. And you would see right. guys walking around these gun and knife shows strapped to the max, and you would see <laughs> right. Uzis. You would see assault rifles. You would see basically everything <laughs> gun-wise you could shake a stick at and guys are just buying and trading, and it was not a big yeah. thing, especially in the early mid '80s when this happened. It seems so foreign now, in today's age to think about it that way. But there were guys walking around with all kinds of stuff strapped on them. So sure, it, sure. you know, given the list that Scott was reading, I I don't doubt that he could do that. I remember going. There was an Army Navy surplus store in Ashbury that me and my buddies would go to, and you saw Claymore parts, you saw Bulletproof Fests, you saw all kinds of stuff there, too, that were, you know, again, in the early 80s, that wasn't long after Vietnam, so a lot of this stuff was very plentiful.
0: Well, yeah, it's it's somebody who uh, knows somebody who knows somebody, and uh, they were in the military, and they absconded with a few pieces that, uh, you know, it's too hard to keep track of all of it, so that stuff floats around in this kind of black market, uh, that's understandable. And then, uh, I mean, I, I know people who, uh, I know a gal who dated a guy that, uh, he was in the army at the time and him and a buddy were stashing weapons in Jeep panels and selling those things. I, I don't think know any more about that. Don't, don't come ask me. But, uh, you know, usually guys like that have some kind of long-term beef, like they're heading over years to a destination point of, I'm going to show the object of this perceived slight, I'm gearing up for a confrontation, which is going to end in, uh, I'm taking
1: us all down kind of a thing. So what do you think this guy's purpose was in gathering all this together? I would say based on what he said on The Wire, you know, he knew he was going to kill himself and that he got Mm -hmm. to that point. I don't know beyond that. I mean, he'd had a lifetime of fraud. He'd lied about everything yeah. he'd ever done. His dad, whether you think he was onto something or a quack, whatever, probably mm-hmm. cast a pretty tall shadow. Everything we've read about his dad was that he was uber strict and uh, very disapproving. If Fritz didn't perform to a certain standard, then he would get ignored. And so I think he just probably had a tortured upbringing.
2: His- upbringing was very strict but he seemed to just be absolutely enamored with his father too and it was right. always trying to please as well, well again
0: <laughs> it's the murder among mormons guy with a very strict Yeah, father, mark hoffman by the way I looked it up. it's mark there hoffman. you go yeah. yes
1: yeah. thank you i have an important milestone to tell you about <gasps> you finally cleaned and organized your apartment
0: no. D- well, y- yes, <laughs> I did recently, and it, it was a major life milestone, but I wanted to tell you I passed level 1000 on Best Fiends a couple of weeks ago. I'm currently at 1030. It was quite a special moment, as I'm sure you can imagine
1: what level are you on now? Well, I'm quite proud of you, and no way in (laughs) heck am I telling you what level I'm on, but that is so impressive. Well, I thank you, sir, and I I
0: guess it's impressive just between the two of us. I I mean, there are players in California alone that are above level 3,400. Well, talk about the Ascended Masters. I can't even imagine. Well, what can you tell us, Obi-Wan, about that rarefied Best Fiends heir up there? (laughs) Well, my young Padawan, there is an important life lesson I've learned from solving all these puzzles and clearing all those levels. Like life, it gets more challenging as you go along. But we learn more from the hard than from the easy. And as tough to beat as a level may seem, the best fiend game gods never give you a challenge you can't beat. There's always a strategy. Always a way.
1: Wow. I, I don't know if you're more Alec Guinness or more Frank Oz right now, but I, I but I like it. Uh, <laughs> I'd usually have to read a yogurt container lid to get that kind of free wisdom. <laughs> nope. All you have to do
0: is download the five-star rated puzzle game Best Fiends free today on the App
1: Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Best Fiends or Matt! Fiend yeah, don't do that. You know what? what? I feel like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> what, what tunnel is that? In the existential tunnel of darkness that belies the inevitability of our confined existence. <laughs> Whoa, Tex. I, no, no, no. I just, I just mean things might be looking up, but uh, still, I mm. feel like folks might need a little extra support to figure out which way is up, frankly. <laughs> yeah, in all seriousness, I'm with you. will not ever have
0: to sit in an uncomfortable waiting
1: room, as you might with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to
0: start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily. Visit betterhelp.com astonishing. That's better, H-E-L-P, and join the over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using
1: BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Astonishing Legends listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com Astonishing.
0: This is Taylor in California, and I think I might have a slight obsession with Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show. What was this last play, though, this this end game of his what sparked him to say, like, uh, you know, these people usually aren't that dumb either. They know that, uh, look, there's not many suspects to look at when they're all connected within one generation and uh, and two families that they're going to come looking for you and, and just as a suspect. So once this guy murders Susie Q's parents and grandmother, yeah. was that the beginning of some kind of end game plan for him? Or did he think, you know, because the other thing is that, yeah, he goes on a chase. That's somebody also thinking we might be able to get away
1: with this. I mean, I mean, that could be the, they'll never take us alive mentality. Yeah. But yeah. Right. Yeah. It's hard to know, I guess. And, and, and perhaps Bledsoe's book goes into more of that about his psyche. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, to me, it doesn't seem like he thought he was getting away to me. Just on the surface, but, you know, I've only, again, only done cursory research on this so far, so. Because this is ancillary to our story here. This is like, it is and it isn't, and that's why I wanted to talk about this and about this guy's personality and the crime and everything is the fact that it ended in that field, and then we've got this story and Tommy's friend seeing this strange animal, and it's more than just a horse because she said its face, it wasn't the face of a horse, so we've got that going on. Then we've also got the people at the house picking up the phone and saying, stop asking us if we have a white horse. We don't have a white horse. So lots <sighs> of people are seeing this thing. Here's another news flash. About three or four miles from here is a neighborhood called White Horse Farms. The street <laughs> we'll where the car passed where the car stopped and blew up is Bronco Lane. All of the roads out this way are, have equine themed names, which you can say, well, it's mm-hmm. a lot of beautiful farmland. Maybe that's just a coincidence, but it is interesting, the white horse idea of it all and the fact that this one's out there and then these folks saying, and who knows if the same people own the house. We were there the other right. day. I didn't quite have the nerve to go ask them if <laughs> well, they had, we don't like of course, but it's been bothering decades. People. I told you yeah. 30 years ago. <laughs> <Yeah>. We <laughs> yeah. didn't know was Get horse. off my <laughs> land.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, she claims, yes, the horse, whatever this horse creature was, it was white, right? That's correct, yes. a pale horse. She said it, yeah, that's right. A pale horse, yeah. Is this just a coincidence that, you know, did he know that he was going to go to this location? What was it about that spot where he was going to have the final, uh, you know, confrontation and, and end it all? What was drawing him there? And what's the connection between that and possibly unrelated or possibly related
1: paranormal weirdness with a strange cryptid? Is the ghost the phantom horse? Is it connected to this at all? Or is that a coincidence? Yeah. Was it right. there before
0: right. he arrived? Had they been Did getting... it draw
1: him out there? Or is it a result of his, if you believe any of this at all, or is it a mm-hmm. result of this horrible, horrid experience happening here and these people all taking their lives right in front of that field and it's some kind of remnant connected to that? Now, obviously, mm. we're saying, if we're saying, oh, well, all the streets are named this and that and the other, that would precede this. If there's White Horse Farms, of course, that neighborhood wasn't there back then. By the way. Mm-hmm. So, why was it called White Horse Farms? We'd have to contact the developer, which I have half a mind to do if I can find him. Why'd you call it this? Uh, oh, I couldn't think of anything, thought it would sell houses. You know, you don't right. know. You uh, so, know. the question mm-hmm. is are the two things related? As you say, Forrest, or it's like that one X Files episode we always talk about, Jose Chunks from Outer Space, where the opening scene is people being abducted by aliens, except those aliens are the military in alien costumes, and those aliens get abducted by real aliens while they're doing the abduction of the people. (laughs) There's like these layers to all of these things going on, concurrent paranormal events. Mm -hmm. And you have to wonder that here, but is there some kind of connection and more even after what we talked about with the crop circles and me starting to think after six years of doing this and all the different things we talked about and and the idea that you make your own reality or that you're somehow participating in reality and you're participating Mm -hmm. in what you perceive and what affects you? Our friend Lori, who is the remote viewing instructor, talks about seeing things that other people don't see, going on hikes and, uh, for years and years, and there's a house there, and then she uh, goes on this hike and the house isn't there, and everyone that she talks to yeah. says there was never yeah. a house there. That kind of stuff starts to make you wonder about what is the nature of reality and how are all these things connected, which is not something we're going to figure out right here, right now, but that's why I'm... <laughs> what? Oh. Yeah, I know. But this is such a strange, strange... Story. And it's such a strange coincidence to have them go out there. And we went out there, and the anniversary's coming up. Mm-hmm. I'd hold Tommy, we might go back out there that night. But nowadays, when you go out in the dark and park outside somebody's house, you yeah. know, the cops are there in 10 minutes. So we, or people get freaked out. We're make, it,
2: make a slow drive-by. Yeah, we
1: might need to do a slow drive-by. Have our wives
2: uh, on standby to yeah. bail us out. Yeah,
1: because <laughs> it's much more populated area now. I mean, the field's still there and that farm right. that has that field is still there. But all around, there's way more houses than there used to be and traffic and all that stuff. Back then, it would have been fairly quiet.
0: We always say this, and of course, uh, responsible shows will, if you're going to do any legend tripping, which is, this is sort of like that, be very respectful of people's personal property and private property and don't go on it, you know, and then also you got to realize people are tired of this. I mean, this is what's interesting, though. The woman that they called whose field this was, wasn't so much tired of the tourism for people trying to visit the spot where this happened, because that, yes, people knew about it, but it's very regional. It's not uh, nationally known. And she was more tired, it seems, by people asking her about this white horse creature. Yeah. You know, what is the connection there? Were they also going to look at this, uh, where this guy ended up, you know, where Fritz and Susie ended up, or is it just not related? And then what's, what? yeah, what is the causal connection here?
1: The other thing that I wonder too, is if the horse is drawn out by all the people coming to this, where this mm-hmm. negative thing took place, is that right. somehow manifesting it or- Drawing something's attention, you know, like Richard wrote in the Mothman Mm -hmm. prophecies, you noticed them and they noticed that you noticed them, whatever this thing was. Well, let me tell you, I looked up a couple of things about this and so did the researchers in the research core. Another shout out to uh, the folks that helped us out there. I did find some things that are similar. There's actually this creature called a Puka, P U C A, and Mm -hmm. this is Irish for a spirit or ghost, primarily a creature of Celtic. Folklore, I'm reading this off the Wikipedia page, considered to be Mm -hmm. bringers both of good and bad fortune, they could help or hinder rural and marine communities. Pukai, I guess is plural, can have dark or white fur or hair. The creatures are said to be shape changers, skinwalker anybody, which could take the appearance of horses, goats, cats, dogs, and hares. They may also take a human form, which included various animal features such as ears, or a tail. The puka has counterparts throughout the Celtic cultures of Northwest Europe, including Wales, the Channel Islands, uh, all all kinds of places. And then further down on the page here, it talks about the forms they take. One theme of the puka's folklore is their proclivity for mischief, and this made me think about uh, your friend getting knocked down. Mm. They are commonly said to entice humans to take a ride on their back, giving the rider a wild and terrifying journey before dropping the unlucky person back. At the place where they were taken from. This lore bears similarities to other Irish folk creatures such as the. Oh, good lord, that's uh, Celtic. Uh, Dowing mate. <laughs> I don't Why? think I can. I shouldn't even try this sentence. Dwynimaha. Dwynimaha. Maha. Maha, which means good people, or the fairy host, uh, said to target humans on the road or. Along their regular passes, these human encounters of the puka tend to occur in rural, isolated places, far from settlements or homes. This was the only thing I could find that seemed to have like some common ground with this particular story. There were some other pieces that uh, that the researchers came up with. In England, of course, this is from a website called Real British Ghosts. There's two things I would read here. One is interesting. It's called White Horse Sighted in White Horse Road. And uh, again, this is from realbritishghosts.com. We'll have a link to this in the show notes for this episode a ghost does not usually appear frequently enough in a particular place to have a road named after it. However, White Horse Road in Edgehill is the exception and is named after the spectral white horse that has been seen galloping across the fields. The road runs from the site of the haunted Edge Hill battlefield to the place where the bodies of the slain soldiers of both armies are buried. There are two theories as to who originally owned the horse. One is that it belonged to Prince Rupert, who survived the battle, and the other that the phantom horse belonged to Captain Kingsmill, who died on the field of battle. And that reminded me that this area is actually close to the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, which took place during the American Revolutionary War. So there was bloodshed up there. There are ghost stories from that park. I don't know if you know that. I just found one on Reddit a few minutes ago that I'm going to read to you after we get done recording here. Excellent. So there's a lot of history in this area. There's a lot of things that might have been the impetus for this creature to show up. It's still strange to me, though, the whole thing about the face Mm -hmm. not being a horse face. That's beyond yeah. anything I'm finding anywhere. None of our researchers found anything relating to that. You know, we talk about shape-shifting and these ideas of the, uh, the Celtic right. lore with the shape-shifters and whatever, you go back to the Skinwalker idea, but I don't know what's happening there. There's a component of this particular story that does seem to not want to be classified by anything that we've covered before, in my opinion. Mm-hmm.
0: The Kelpie from Scottish folklore, often described as a black horse-like creature, which is able to adopt human form. But listen to this, Scott, and Tommy, here is that by a lot of accounts, the Kelpie has to retain its hooves. And where do we hear that? Uh, well, the a nice manor in Ireland. Oh, Loftus Hall. That, uh, yeah. Loftus Hall, where the devil appears. But if you look under the table, he's still got his cloven hooves. So it's a common meme that there's elements that they're not totally able to change. So there are telltale signs. It, it's not completely... Like the animal they're trying to adopt, or we've heard about this. We're talking about skinwalkers that you'll see a wolf-like creature, but only part of it is. They might have human hands, but the rest of it is more or less shaped like a wolf, or the legs are straight instead of with the uh, the haunches and the and the dog legs there. So it's very interesting. But there are parallels to German folklore with the with the neck or the Nixie, the BakaHast I think is uh, another one. So there's always animals that are described in folklore. And then you got to wonder, I believe these people saw what they saw because I've had other close friends that I truly believe. Well, a uh, very close friend of mine, the, I guess, cryptid that she saw as a young child, the Jughead. We I got to have a rod finally, because as we know, Tommy is like, you, you get these stories from people and even ones that you ask to tell, please tell me the story again at every dinner you go to. There are some details and elements that I'm not sure I'm getting correctly, but as she saw it as a, as a young girl, this thing's got the body of uh, the lower half, more like a regular animal, like maybe a small zebra or something, uh, I believe stripes on part of it. But the head is like a cookie jar, you know, just round cylindrical thing with almost human like features on the front of it and an awareness. It it looked at her and gave her a look like, uh, Hey, what's up? uh i'm just going to keep going this way so see ya you know and she's like well that's weird i you know i know animals i've never seen that before so uh same thing with rob's half kangaroo creature with a more human like face right. there's something that's to the this. only other
1: time i've heard a story of an animal with a yeah. human like face is rob's story That, you know, at least right now, I'm I'm sure they're out there, but...
0: It's two, yeah. So I'm going to have to ask my friend to uh, come on and do a little description of that, uh, just to nail that down. Of course, you know, it's so long ago, but that kind of stuff makes an impression on you. And uh, yeah, there's something about the face, though. And it's like uh, doppelgangers. There's something that's very close, but there's always something that's off. Right. Uh, Same with the black-eyed kids. It's like, well, it's the black eyes. (laughs) People say, uh, if it is some kind of demonic presence, a spirit, uh, whatever it is, interdimensional being... They're not totally 100% human. There's a giveaway. There must be a rule in the Astonishing Legends almanac of rules that uh, you can get 99% there, but not 100. And it's
2: interesting, too. There seems to be a time limit. They can fool you for so long, only Mm -hmm. for so long. And then you start to realize something's not correct.
1: Well, and that's an interesting point, too, because you wonder if there's a, a component of it that has to do with whatever is trying to mess with you, exerting having to exert force to keep you in the trance that's necessary to right. complete it. And that taking energy and it only lasting a certain amount of time. Well, so yeah. Forrest, you had one other story of a friend of yours, didn't you, that involved a horse? Yeah, this involves a white horse. And I'd heard this
0: uh, for many, many years now. This is a story of a, a very close, and old friend of mine. I rang her up and wanted to get this story again. So we we chatted for quite a while because... I'd heard this, uh, Jesus would have been back in uh, 2005, perhaps, 2004, you know, when I got her to tell me all her ghost stories way before we thought of uh, putting them on a podcast. Uh, Same kind of thing. So she was too busy at the beginning of this week. I, I think she would gladly come on to have told the story herself. She's a pretty good storyteller as a great voice, but uh, I couldn't get her recorded in time. But same thing like with, with Tommy. I said, well, just tell me the details. And she said, uh, yeah, I'll tell you everything, and uh, you'll be able to tell it well enough. You've heard this over and over again. But But some details were not exactly as I had remembered them all these years. So... When you hear the story, it's more about, you could say a white horse, but in a different scenario that's maybe more tied to the property here in a more traditional ghostly way. But the story of seeing the white horse is actually more tied to a haunted house story. So this takes place uh, where my friend Evelyn is from, and it's not her real name, in mid coast Maine. So Lincoln County at a house that was just a few miles up or down the road from where she grew up and the house she grew up. And it was, uh, as she described it, typical Cape Cod style house, probably built just after the turn of the century, had some history to it. Not ancient, uh, as we'll see in some eastern locations where the house could be from the 1700s or even late 1600s. Just after the turn of the century style house seemed pretty normal. And in a small town like that, everybody knows everyone else. So they all know each other's stories and they, they know each other fairly well. And most everybody gets along. My friend, her, her dad worked as an electrical contractor, so he knew a bunch of people in town and worked at businesses and some uh, residences, so you know he would just do uh, whatever needed to be done electrically at wherever the location, so he happened to be at this house. Her dad was there, and they they knew the people that lived there, and I think he was uh, getting some estimates or checking out a, an electrical problem, and he's downstairs in the living room or parlor with the woman of the house. And suddenly the whole ceiling seems to bow down and bend down and the chandelier just starts shaking. And the way it's always been described to me is just, it doesn't seem like a natural look. It's just the the whole ceiling kind of bends down, bows in towards them. The chandelier shakes. And uh, the first thing you're thinking is like, the kids must be jumping up and down or they're doing something. They're up there causing a ruckus. And so the woman then had a couple of teenage kids, but they were out of the house there's no one upstairs. And now two people have seen this. So my friend's father and uh, the woman who, who lived there both saw this and just like, whoa, that was unusual and strange. Uh, and then of course, the, the ceiling returns to normal, channel stops moving. Just one of many things I believe this woman had seen. Now, here's the deal. The daughter of the woman was a good high school friend of, of my friend. She'd never seen anything. She'd never witnessed anything. She never sensed anything about the apartment. Her stepdad had never sensed anything. He'd lived there a long time. It was just usually the mom. And uh, she had seen a few things on, on several occasions. One of them, the friend of a friend, her mother and the stepdad, they had a baby. So they had a young child here. And on several occasions, the mother woke up to see this woman dressed in white older, this older lady, peering down, like looking into the crib at the newborn. And of course, she's startled. How did this woman get into the house? Who is this? And then the you, know, you turn your head to look somewhere else, and the woman's gone. So this had happened, I think, a few times where she had seen this older woman dressed in, uh, and I try to get a description, of course, uh, you know my friend uh, Evelyn like, couldn't remember the the details that closely but she said it was just kind of a white gown a white gown dress but definitely an older woman spirit other strange things about the house you know there was a few families throughout the generations that lived there they all had surnames that started in the letter b for whatever reason maybe just a coincidence no couples who occupied the house could stay married Everyone eventually ended up getting divorced. That's another common thing you hear about uh, haunted houses. There's always usually some kind of family trouble, sometimes leading to tragedy, but uh, divorce is pretty common. I've heard that some personal paranormal stories about people they knew in in supposedly haunted houses. So that is the first event though, and several events is the the ceiling bowing down. My friend's dad told that to the family like, well, wow, that's pretty weird. Yeah, we all knew something was off about that house everybody in the small town knew there was something maybe haunted or spooky about that house. Tons of great ghost stories in, in Maine and New England. And my friend, she said she got a weird vibe from the place. Didn't want to stay over, you know, for a sleepover there. Didn't really like being there. And I think maybe after that or after a while, just didn't want to go over there anymore. So she felt something, uh, but she's pretty intuitive and and empathetic. One of the other things happening here is that one day, my friend's mom, and apparently it's the same kind of scenario where this house is situated with a big field next to it and it's around a bend. So you have to pass by the house to get into the main part of town or the the center of town uh, and and other bigger towns. And so you're driving by it quite a bit, several times a week, if not daily. And she comes around the bend and she sees the house there and she looks in the field and there's a horse, a white horse standing in the field which has no fence. The property had several acres next to it. In this part of it, there's a big open field, a pasture next to the house, and this part has no fence. There's just a horse, a white horse standing there, looking straight ahead at her as she drives by. She, of course, well, that's odd. I don't remember them having a white horse. She, of course, looks back to the road uh, for a second to keep her car in the lane, of course. Looks back a second later, the horse is gone, just not there anymore yeah, that was pretty odd. Where did the horse go? Did he gallop away? Where could it have gone? It's all open field. And she tells the family and, in talking with other friends and neighbors, like, yeah, we've also seen this white horse there. And the guy, the, the stepdad of the house owned a couple of horses. He did have horses, but one was black and one was tan not a white horse. And people would ask them like, Hey, when'd you, when'd you get the white horse? Like we've never owned a white horse. So it's the same thing as the lady who owns the field. It's like, stop asking us about the white horse. I don't know what you're seeing, but a lot of people have. Now, my friend had never seen the horse, nor I think any of the other family members, but her mom did. And she's one of those stoic maniacs who isn't prone to a lot of tall tales. They usually tell it like it is. So, but of course my friend is trustworthy and these are just family stories. So of course, people got interested then around the town and they started checking into the history of the house and they started to look back at the previous owners who, who owned this house. Did any of them ever own a white horse? And guess what? Yes, they did. It may have been one of the first or second owners or one of the generations of the families, but apparently the previous owners did have a horse that was white that they, they kept or stabled in that field. And they also found that the father of the house was involved in some kind of tragedy, or at least the previous owner was either killed, befell some kind of tragedy or accident. Uh, This would be the early 1900s. And there was also possibly the loss of a child, which may explain the older woman's looking into the crib and being very curious about the infant. Yeah. So there's your tie in. That's the button on the ghost story. You go check back and yes, indeed. Uh, what are the, one of the earlier owners or maybe the, the original owner did have a white horse. So then you wonder, is that his horse? Why is it showing up? Is that the wife of the original owner who befell some kind of tragedy or did the family tragedy burn the image of that horse into the field or its spirit keeps coming back for some reason, as does the older woman. And so you, you got to wonder. But that's more of a traditional white ghost
1: horse story. Well, yeah, Tommy's story does not fit any traditions that I can think of. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, this, as far as I know, the horse had a normal horse face. Why
0: the long face? <laughs> so, and, uh, as opposed to it this, work. it's like it's like a horse, but oh my gosh, you instantly know it's that uncanny valley feeling. Like that's not a horse face.
1: Well, Tommy, that's something you know. We, when we mentioned this, when you told the story, maybe we can get her to talk you through an illustration of it. Yeah, um, I would be. That's something hundred percent game for that. Yeah, sure. So Let's let's look into that.
2: There's one last thing. Forces mm. you were telling your story about the horse just sort of standing in the field. And then I was Mm -hmm. talking about earlier the thunderstorms and things like that. My dad grew up in a very rural part of North Carolina as well. And he and his family lived in a house that was separated by a large field from his grandparents. And this Mm -hmm. field, other things happened too, but he said one of the things that he said that he had hurt his grandparents and he said, I've even, I even remember seeing this happen too. They said that, Before particularly large thunderstorms, they would see a white dog run through Mm. this field. And no one in the family or around knew of anyone who owned a white dog, but they said they would only see it right before a big storm. And he said he remembers as a kid, I remember looking out and seeing this white dog run through the field and then
0: there was this storm that would happen. That's interesting. Two comments. First of all, before we uh, wrap up here, and I forget to mention it, of course, when we're talking about crop circles, in the documentary Crop Circles Quest for Truth, there's an interview with a uh, a woman who's a uh, very knowledgeable historian about ancient Celtic practices, uh, especially for southern England in these areas of Wiltshire and, uh, you know, the whole area that have the uh, the sacred standing stones and and on the hills, uh, like the White Horse of Uffington, all around the hills, she was explaining it. the White Horse was revered by the ancient peoples of Albion, uh, the, the ancient name for uh, England, in that they believed the White Horse carried the soul to the afterlife. That's why it was important. They thought it was important enough to put it on the sides of hills and very large white stone or or I think maybe crushed rock. So, it's always a reminder of how sacred the place is and how uh, spiritual it is, and that it was something important to them. And there's a deep ancient symbology to the image of the white horse for some reason. So, and, you know, if you've ever seen a, a large white horse, they're very graceful, very beautiful to look at. There's something, of course, that we hold special about uh, the image of, of a horse and horses themselves same thing with deers and stags, you know, well, actually any animal since caveman times, we're, we're in awe of animals and we, uh, they're part of our psyche in a very deep way and we're connected to them. Second thing I want to mention, maybe four or five nights ago, I was, uh, as God, kind I of often, usually before we we're, were going to record or something, uh, it was one of those nights where I was resting very peacefully, but not quite asleep. I was kind of like half asleep and it was a warm night, so I had the window open, and the window's right next to my bed, so if I sit up in bed, I I can you know, see out the window onto the street. Around 3 a.m., I was awakened with a bit of a clatter, uh, or just like, not commotion, but it just sounded like something outside shuffling, and I like to say clatter because that's from the uh, night before Christmas. It got my attention because it didn't sound like, you know, sometimes you'll hear guys late at night, and they're rolling a shopping cart, they're looking for bottles and cans, or somebody's wheeling something around. Sometimes somebody's jogging. That's a very distinct sound. We get a lot of coyotes. You'll hear them yip and run down the street. Oddly enough, in L.A., uh, because uh, we're not too far from Griffith Park. But there's something weird about the sound. It's just like shuffling or clattering around. So I sit up in bed, and again, I'm I'm not half asleep at this point. I have not nearly even fallen asleep. And then I see this what looks like a a, a white dog or wolf running down the street, taking a corner on the nearest cross street and then just kind of disappearing into the night. One, perhaps an albino coyote, (laughs) not very likely. I've seen a ton of them and uh, probably the same ones or somebody's dog got loose, which is possible the more likely scenario but you know people keep a pretty tight rein on their animals here so it was just odd that you would mention that now there was no thunderstorm but it's just like it's stuck in my head like that's unusual uh seeing a white dog just running pretty fast down the street taking a left turn going down the side street and then as he kind of disappears this is often a common thing so i don't think anything weird about it but i saw this light bouncing in the darkness And usually what that is, again, that's uh, some guy with a headlamp looking for bottles and cans and going through the recycling. But this was not a recycling night. So, you know, again, that's not supernatural. It's just maybe somebody tooling around outside their property or going down the street with a headlamp because it was just kind of bouncing around, moving around. And then I just kind of said, let's look at this for a few more minutes and see if anything weird happens. And eventually the light goes out. But the dog must have run by this guy because it just, as soon as it disappeared into the darkness, the light comes on. So just a couple of random weird things. What was the size of the dog? Could you tell? Or the breed or anything like that? Yeah, it, would, like it that? would be the size of a, a, a good size, a not king strain, but a good size German shepherd. Oh, wow. So big. Yeah, fairly big dog. Yeah. Not a uh, border collie size, uh, bigger than that. It would be like, you know, a decent sized German shepherd. Uh, but again, not the really big ones that they use for, uh, for guard duty. Yeah, but a white German Shepherd. Interesting. What I noticed is it was uh, it wasn't yipping. Like I said, the the clattering was earlier. That got my attention. It was just a uh, yeah uh, in the in German Shepherd shaped too. That kind of a dog, but pure white, just just a white dog. And of course, it showed up very clearly in the night where it was lit by streetlights that are there. So got a good look at it. Just peeling around the corner. It's like, geez, somebody's dog got out. Well. That's odd.
2: And that it was three o'clock which tends yeah, to be some magical hour too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah perhaps that there's some
0: connection there or it's just all random and it was somebody's pet. Uh, absolutely. You know, that didn't have a collar, you know? So these are all things, that, it's like, what's the meaning of it? Other than the connection made here is that you just told that story and I'm like, wow, that happened to me a few nights ago.
1: Yeah, that's wild. Well, Tommy, uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank absolutely. you for sharing that story and for joining us yeah. for this discussion on it. And uh, we hope we can have you back again. Uh, certainly.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Anytime. Yeah, always a pleasure, Tommy. It's great talking with you. You're you're a fantastic storyteller, and this is just scratching the surface. You have a lot more that you're experienced with, correct? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We there. There are all kinds of stories, uh,
2: personal okay. and other friend stories that we could certainly delve into. That's for sure.
0: I'd love to get into it. So whenever you're available, sir, we'll we'll have you back on.
2: Fantastic.
0: Sounds great
1: that's gonna wrap up our show on the phantom horse of greensboro we're dark the next two weeks but we'll be back with a brand new show on june 12th in the meanwhile look for us at firesidechat.com slash scott philbrook as well as on youtube please remember to support
0: our sponsors They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special
1: thanks to John Bolin. Hi. Hi, I'm T-A-Y-L-O-R.
0: The Nerdy Girl, a.k.a.
1: Tristan Fuller.
0: P-A-Y-N-E.
1: Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone,
0: was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough.